as most of you probably know, we've got a first service at 9 o'clock, and I often wear a tie at that service, and most typically take the tie off when I come here, but as I was about to take it off, I thought, and I don't see him here this morning, but one of our mid-hires, Ben, is always wearing his tie, and I love the style of that kid, and so I thought, I'm going to keep my tie on and try and connect with Ben, but I don't see him here this morning. So when you come across Ben today, later on this week, tell him that this was for him this morning. It's a wonderful song um, written years and years and years ago by the author Fanny Crosby, and um, it's familiar to many of you, would be my guests. Tell me the story of Jesus, right on my heart, every word. Tell me the story most precious, sweetest that ever was heard. Tell how the angels in glory sang as they welcomed his birth. Glory to God in the highest, peace and good tidings on earth. Tell me the story of Jesus. Write every word on my heart. Tell me the story most precious, sweetest that ever, ever, ever has been. This is the story today of Jesus. It's the story of a woman at the well, but this is a story that is a moment where Jesus' story comes into contact with someone else's storyline. And when that happens, some amazing things take place. And so it seems to me that it is very, very powerful to relay these stories of Jesus and Try and get at what is it that comes out of this story that intersects with my story now. To hear it not only through the lens of those who might have heard it then, but hear it today and what that might mean for you. Your story is not mine. My story is not the same as the person next to you. We all come to this place with a different different background different collection of experiences. But I would propose to you that when that storyline intersects with the story of Jesus, something changes. I don't exactly know how to explain it, but because it so consistently happens, I think one of my wonderful privileges is to tell that story and see how it might affect you this morning through God's Spirit. The passage that was read comes out of John chapter 4. We started a few verses after the beginning of the chapter. The chapter begins with Jesus, um, who has finished interaction with Nicodemus that we read about in chapter 3. As chapter 4 begins... We find that Jesus learns something that the Pharisees have heard. The Pharisees have heard that Jesus is gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. I did not know it was a competition. Apparently the Pharisees think it's a competition and are keeping score of these things. And so they've looked at the tally sheet and somehow this is what they believe is the case. But scripture tells us that, in fact, Jesus doesn't baptize at all. It's 
Jesus' disciples who are baptizing the followers that come to see and to hear Jesus and to be healed. As a result of this, and I'm not exactly sure why he thinks this, except that John is down in the southern area of Jesus' life ministry, down in Judea, and Jesus decides that he needs to go back up to Galilee, back up north. And scripture says he finds it necessary to go through Samaria. This passage is jam-packed full of history, history that makes a difference. But I know full well that we don't have the same knowledge of this history that the people who would read it in the first and second century would have. And so let me just bring us up to date a little bit on what would be known by that audience who hears this story so that we might be on the same page. Samaria. This area of land and its dispute or struggle with those who are in Judea, which is just beneath them, just south of them, dates back to the days just following King Solomon. King Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was to take over the kingdom. There was someone who was a contemporary by the name of Jeroboam who felt like he deserved to be in power. The kingdom split into two. The bottom half became known as Judah or Judea, and that's the area that Solomon's son, Rehoboam, ruled. The northern area was the area that Jeroboam ruled. There's no quiz at the end of this. You don't have to memorize those names. But I want to tell you why this is such an interesting territory of land. Jeroboam did not want the kingdom to reunite. Didn't want any part of that. And so he set up systems to make them distinct from the southern portion. Even going as far as to set up a religion system that was different than that which was in the south. Eventually, under a pretty evil king by the name of Omri, he set up the town of Samaria to be the capital of that northern kingdom. And eventually, the entire area came to be known by the name of that city. Well, the differences went into where they worshipped, how they worshipped, the political system, where they paid taxes, all of those kinds of things. As time passes, Assyria, from up north, gains power and strength and invades this northern kingdom of, Samar of Samaria. So the ABCs, A is for the Assyrians, come in. And it's sometime around... 722 BC that they conquer this area and they take all of the people captive those that remain they bring immigrants into the area they have a desire the Assyrians that there be no vestige of culture no pure race all of that needs to give way because these people need to give their full allegiance to the Assyrians about 125 years later, B, the Babylonians, come and invade the southern kingdom. 
About 605, they take siege of Jerusalem. About 597, they take most of the residents into captivity. They leave a number behind. But unlike the Assyrians, the Babylonians gave these people the privilege of continuing their religious practices, of remaining a group of people, of developing communities that were unique to their culture. Seventy years later, see King Cyrus, a Persian, says that they can go back and repopulate their land. And so those who were taken off into Babylonian captivity make their way back into Judea. This animosity between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom continued. The Samaritans offered to help rebuild Jerusalem and even the temple. And they were summarily rebuffed by those in the south. I don't think that's where the word comes from, but it's interesting how similar they are. The Samaritans were summarily rebuffed and told to mind their own business, basically. The conflict continued. At one point in time, the Samaritans gave assistance to the Syrians in the second century BC as they fought against the southern kingdom repatriates. Things got so bad that um, in the early part of the first century BC, about 125, the high priest of Judah burned down the temple at Mount Gerizim, be considered an act of terrorism, or at least a hate crime, if it was happening today. So this long history is a history that all of these people are aware of. It's tough for us to relate to that. Most of us have a really relatively short history in terms of our culture. Most of us consider this country our homeland, not everyone, but most of us do. And in that regard, there are European churches that are older than our country. So often when we have missionaries that leave this place and go overseas and try and share the good news, it's, it's received with a bit of defensiveness because of that very fact. What do you have to tell us? Your country is so young, your journey is so short. We've been on this journey for a thousand years or more. And I would probably say that there's an argument there that's correct. We'd be well served to listen first, to learn first. Then maybe we'd have a voice to ask questions. And I think it's appropriate to ask questions. What's happened? Why? How have things gotten to this stage and how might that be true for us and what should we be concerned about? What should we work toward? That kind of dialogue helps everyone in the process. But these people who are hearing this story that John writes in this gospel know their storyline. They know their history. And so as Jesus goes through Samaria, there is this natural tension that takes place. Apparently it was a hot day or a long walk, I'm not sure which. Jesus decides to take a a, a rest by the well in Sychar, in Samaria. The disciples go on into the town to get some food because they're hungry. Jesus says, I'll wait here, you go on without me. And as he waits, a woman comes to the well. 
he says, could you give me something to drink? And she's startled for multiple reasons. She's right up front about it. She says, really? You're going to talk to me? Didn't think Jews talked to Samaritans. And I'm a woman. Jesus moves right past this. It's almost as if it doesn't faze him at all. And in fact, I, I love uh, a story that's going to come a little bit later in this gospel, John 8, 48, where those who are debating with Jesus say, and aren't you a Samaritan and demon-possessed? And his response is, I am absolutely not demon-possessed. Never says a thing about Samaritans. It's like, you're not going to drag me into that us-versus-them conversation. That's a ridiculous statement. I'm going to have no part of that. In fact, he identifies with those who are on the other side of the we-versus-they argument. And so he completely bypasses that and just addresses the demon possession portion. I love it here as well. He moves right past issues that are barriers that he knows are faults. Not that they don't exist, but they're faults. They certainly do exist, but they are false barriers that need to be broken down. So Jesus begins to talk about living water. You ought to be asking me, he says, I could give you water that would quench a thirst you'd never thirst again. Living water, John's way of using a line that speaks of what the Spirit's work can do in somebody's life. Have you ever been incredibly thirsty and you just didn't know it? There have been times when I have been working hard or it's been a hot, difficult day and I haven't paid attention to my thirst level, but then when I see somebody who has a cold drink of water or an iced tea or something like that, all of a sudden I realize how incredibly thirsty I am. I desperately want it. There's a great story. I, I told it once, but it's quite a few years ago, of a um, water shortage in New York City that happened because I think some pipelines broke and the huge networks of neighborhoods were, were shut down from water. And what they did at the time was they brought in large trucks, big tanks filled with water. They were actually called water buffaloes. And they moved them into neighborhoods and they would come around to the back of the truck and people from all over the neighborhood would come and fill up jugs and pots and everything they had with water. And I remember a woman being interviewed on the nightly news who was a resident in New York in one of these neighborhoods where the water buffaloes had come in to help with the neighborhood. And in the interview, she made the statement. She said, my kids never drink water. But as soon as they found out they couldn't have any water, it's all they want to drink. So I have to make these trips out to the water buffaloes to get water for us. That's certainly true that very often the things we can't have are the things we begin to crave, but even more so, Jesus is talking about a thirst that we all have, but until the Spirit brings it to our attention, we might, might not realize the depths of the thirst that we have. She wants this water. I'm interested in this. I won't have to come out to the well all the time, is what she says. And Jesus' response is, 
well, go back into the town, get your husband, and come back. And she responds by saying, I don't have a husband, which is true. It's just not all of the truth. So Jesus fills in what she had neglected to say. And that is, you've had five husbands, and the man you're with right now is not your husband. Wow, is that really where we're going to go? Okay, yep, that's true. Here's what's interesting, I think. There are several exit points for Jesus. And Jesus doesn't exit. Samaritan doesn't exit. A woman doesn't exit. Here's your storyline, doesn't exit. We're going to find at the end of this story that she goes back into the town and she says to the townspeople, you ought to come out and see this man who told me everything I've ever done. It might be the Messiah. Now, either in that statement, she's not telling the truth. He told me everything I've ever done. Or all she can remember about her past are the five husbands and the one she's living with now. Or they had a much longer conversation. And I think the truth of the matter is they had a much, much longer conversation. What would it be like? To sit down with someone who knew your whole story already. Who started bringing up pieces of that story. Parts you were skipping over, leaving out, glossing over. Stuff you thought was pretty much in the past. What would it be like for that person not only to not leave, but to stay fully engaged, to accept, to hear, to love. That's not real typical. Even, it seems to me, for those who are paid to do that. One of my favorite Peanuts cartoons, Lucy is sitting at her booth that looks a lot like a lemonade stand, but is her psychiatric help stand. And it has five cents with a sign at the top, psychiatric help. And she's sitting there at the desk, and one of the other Peanuts characters walks up and says, so I can tell you anything? And she says, yeah, absolutely anything. And then the next box, you can tell the person is talking, though you can't tell exactly what's being said. And then the final box is, excuse me, she says, excuse me for a moment while I go puke. That is not the reaction you hope people have when they hear what you have to say. That is just the opposite of what happens here in this moment. Jesus hears some of the story, tells a lot of the story, I know very often we think about freedom from the past. What if that phrase got turned inside out and it was freedom through the past or freedom with the past? I feel like so often the past, the history, the stories, I've dealt with some of those things, let me just leave them there. 
What if there was one who knew me better than anyone and taught me ways to speak about, live into, grow from, redeem those stories in ways that change my understanding of my past? I think this is part of what she's telling the townspeople about. But I know that my thoughts immediately go to the laundry list of all of the things that I would want kept secret. (laughs) But that doesn't seem like Jesus' character to only deal with those things. My guess is, and I don't know this for sure, but based on the other things I read about Jesus, my guess is that there are also portions of this conversation at the well where he's reminding her of her best moments. Yeah, but do you remember when... That child knocked at your door and you took care of her in an incredible fashion. Do you remember the time when somebody was so demeaning to you and you let it pour off your back and it didn't change the way you treated that individual? Do you remember the time when the townspeople marginalized you but you still did your best to greet others on the way to the well? Do you remember the time going through the list of story after story as Jesus calls out those moments of of hope, of grace, of beauty. I'd go to the townspeople as well and say, this may be the Messiah. Those words, nobody knew those things about me. I thought those things were in private, but oh my goodness, to hear somebody talk about those things as well. Part of the theme for this week is less bondage, more freedom. What if it was freedom with the past? What happens when Jesus' telling of the story begins to change my, his story? not all that Jesus was talking about. She changed the conversation a little bit and said, well, it appears as if you're a prophet, so tell me about this mountain. There are many people who believe, at least our forefathers do, that we have to worship on this mountain. We're back to this Mount Gerizim place. Yet the Jews say that we have to worship in Jerusalem. What do you say? Jesus' response Well, the day is coming when all of those who follow God will worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus is painting a picture of the future where the dividing lines are dispelled. It's no longer where the Samaritans worship and where the Jews worship. It's no longer where the men sit and where the women sit. It's no longer a division between cultures or geographic location It is what unites us, spirit and truth. When God's truth begins to be my truth, when God's telling of my story becomes my understanding of my story, in spirit and in truth, all of those dividing lines start to break down. We see them for how insufficient they are, how inadequate they are. Jesus is painting a picture of the past and of the future. 
that is different than she could have ever imagined. And the potential to give her freedom to live today. While the conversation is still going on, the disciples show up. They're not quite sure what to make of this scene. They have learned already that it's probably wise not to question Jesus just yet. Wait and see what he says about it. And so they kind of hold their own a little bit and just watch. The woman leaves her water jug and heads back to the town to tell the story. I love that she left the water jug. I'm not sure I'm going to need the water jug anymore, might have been her thought. Takes off and goes to the town, and as we've already indicated, tells them, here's this person, told me everything about myself, I think he might be the Messiah, I'm actually going to go back, I left my water jug there, I don't know if I need it or not, but I'm going to go back, so 